today with just some questions. Let's see if people have questions or reflections. Uh, we we left you with what we with with a twinkle in our eye refer to as homework. That is some ideas for you know how to how to maybe explore a little bit between our sessions together. But curious whether anything came up for anybody, whether there are any questions about the teachings on Tuesday or uh, or uh, anything related. So feel free to raise a hand with the with the Zoom hand. And although I suspect everybody knows where to find that, I'm just going to say again, it's under the reactions tab at the bottom of the screen, which depending on your settings may just appear when you roll your, your cursor over it. Also in the three dots in the upper right of your picture you can raise your hand. And if those things don't appear, feel free to wave your hand around and we'll do our best to see it in the couple of screens we have. So yeah, any questions, reflections, observations, complaints? Margaret. Well, thank you all for this uh, course. It's just wonderful. I appreciate the information and the meditations. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I know um, I have been studying with Venerable Analio, and in his perspectives on Satipatthana, he does say that um, the Chinese versions of the Satipatthana do include the four jhanas, and that's the way uh, he practices. Yeah, appreciate that. And for people who don't know the name Analio, Bhikkhu Analio or Analio Bhikkhu, uh, this is a, a, a scholar, monk, practitioner, German by birth, who has been one of, is one of the contemporary, foremost contemporary commentators on mindfulness practices. And in the, uh, in the guided meditation that I'll, I'll lead today, I'll actually draw directly on on some of his work. At any rate, if the name Analio is unfamiliar to you, um, he's written a great deal on the Satipatthana. And one of his expertises, as Margaret points out, is the comparison of the texts we have in Pali, <laughs> parallel texts found in Chinese. And those texts are referred to as, as the Agamas, which I think Margaret used. At any rate, just David, a little background. Any, sorry, David, do you have any comment on that about why they would be in the not be in the Pali? You know, um, there's a history to that, and um, I, I, I'll say two words about it, which is to ask Ying to tell us something about that. I can't see. I know. <laughs> yeah. And then I would say that um, I think... Biku uh, Analia, when he did uh, this comparative studies and he did uh, draw out uh, things that are common uh, across the different mindfulness um, practices that are in the uh, uh, in the Pali Canon, and so he developed his own way working with this, um, and I just want to offer uh, that. Uh, maybe this is, is something informative for ourselves um, in terms of drawing what might be beneficial to ourselves. And that may change over time. And maybe I'll just add 
we do know that this real clear distinction between insight and concentration is a much later development. And so we, and then we kind of have this in our minds when we go back and we look at the earlier texts, we're like, oh, here's a distinction, or maybe the distinction wasn't so great, but we tend to emphasize it because uh, we've been influenced by the commentarial tradition, kind of Buddha Gosha, you know, like maybe 800 years after the time of the Buddha. So maybe that's one thing I'll say. And the second thing is there are a lot of differences between the Agamas and the Nikayas, between the what's preserved in Chinese and what's preserved in Pali. And it's fascinating. And of course, Nalio has books, plural, right, written on this topic. So there's lots of differences that we can find. But maybe we'll get back to you and see if we can find something yeah. in particular. Thank you all. And uh, I'm going to ask Valerie for her question, but first I'll say this. I mentioned the history. One of the reasons for the difference is that the corpus of texts in Pali and Sanskrit continued to evolve, whereas those in Chinese, were there was a vast translation project, several actually, and they're, they're, they're more of a specific period. And so one of the things Inalio does at length is try to get a sense of what was um, maybe earlier or to it's a, a whole scholarly fascination with dating the uh, particular practices and um, uh, points of teaching that we find in the different texts. At any rate, that's perhaps enough on that for the moment. Valerie. <laughs> well, <clears throat> my question is actually about Analio. Um, so I'll, this is a good time for it. Um, when I, I sat retreat with him, um, he went through a long, we did a meditation regularly, um, and maybe you're all, f- you are familiar with it, with uh, going through the whole body as skin, and then the whole body as flesh, and then the whole body as bone. And of course, as I'm saying it now, I realize it's, it's really, I think it was really an insight. I was going to ask you about it, but it seems to me it's an insight meditation about non-self, uh, not self, um, that's why actually I started to ask you if this is a, a concentration thing, but I think it's an insight thing. And, um, but I'm wondering also how it relates to these practices that we're looking at. I was thinking about this charnel practices, for instance. So anyway, any comments about that meditation that he, he says he does it. He when I sat with him, he said he did it every day. It was part of his regular practice. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we're going to do, we're going to do a version of that meditation today. And, you know, this distinction again between whether this is an insight or that a concentration practice, I think I would encourage people to explore for yourself and see if you think that's a useful distinction uh, in, a, in a practice like this. So anyway, we'll, we'll do that. And it's, it's related to the, this is a distillation of the 32 uh, body parts uh, c- contemplation, which Kim will talk about. Kim? I just had one thing to add, um, which is just to be clear that um, Analio, as the teacher of these mindfulness practices, he teaches two of them. He teaches the Satipatthana, MN10, and he teaches Anapanasati, uh, MN118. We are looking at MN119, (laughs) the mindfulness of the body. That's not to say that there's a vast difference between these Suttas, but we had our Diana's nice little chart that lays them out. And there's a lot of parallel between, of course, MN10 and MN119 in uh, the body practices. 
But, you know, one might, this is another thing for us to consider in our practice, you know, even though the text maybe is the same, does the context of the sutta invite us to engage with, even though it's the contemplation of the 32 parts or the elements, does it invite us to engage differently if we see it as a way of establishing mindfulness or as a way of cultivating mindfulness of the body? I don't know that there has to be a distinction there, but we could consider that. Thanks, Kim. Really glad you said that. We have time for just one more question right now. We'll have time for further questions later today and going forward. But Winnie, your hand came up a few moments ago. I just want to share something um, that I learned very recently. And it's about your sleep-wake cycle, which people call the circadian cycle. And I was and then I was relating that to what we were talking about on Tuesday, because part of the mindfulness practice of your body would be like, well, what is my natural cycle? Because according to these experts, there is a natural cycle and it changes over time, especially as you age. So then, you know, when you put that, the two and two together, you go, oh, yeah, there's also some nat- some things that's naturally going on in your body that you're not aware of. So you better be aware of them, basically, if you're going to do the mindfulness of the body practice. So that's what I wanted to share. Thank you, Winnie, for sharing that. And indeed, as we go forward, both in the teachings and in the practice, um, I think we'll... Um, we'll see that there, that there's uh, there's much that happens in the body of which we're unaware and that it benefits us when we're, when we bring mindful attention to it. And can I slip just one thing in here? I just want to say, I think it's fantastic. Analio has his own teachings. Gil has his own teachings. We can have teachings. And just to remember that, you know, for thousands of years, uh, there often there would be like monasteries or organizations that would like just do one set of teachings and their own particular interpretation and find awakening, find freedom using this way. So this could be a trap to think like, oh, we have to find the one right way. So just uh, and it's just the beauty that there is more than one interpretation and that we can find our way with whatever there is. Just wanted to stick that in there. Thank you, Diana. I'm going to pass pass it to Ying. Yeah, thank you for all the sharing and comments. And I want to just check with you to see if the sound is okay. You all? Yeah? Okay, great. So um, we are going to dive in uh, with some more of the embodied practices that this uh, sutta offers us. As uh, Winnie was pointing out, as we begin to pay attention to our bodies, we began to see uh, there are all these different, you know, we can call it a cycles or ways that we engage with our bodies. And in this uh, sutta, uh, the Buddha uh, offered the six practices. And then two of them uh, is what I will be highlighting uh, right now. And that's called the posture practice and uh, embodied activities practice. Uh, I'm going to borrow uh, Diana's handout. Let's see if I can bring this handout up. Um, See. Oh, I guess I I shared the wrong thing about it. 
share the wrong thing. Uh, let me see if I can share the right table here. All right. Are you able to see? For some reason, I'm not able to see my uh, sharing screen. Are you able to see the uh, table where uh, we have the list of uh, practices? Okay, I see the hand up, uh, thumbs up. Okay, so I'm going to highlight this too that we will be talking about right now. That is the posture practice and the activities uh, in this table. I just uh, um, read this um, quickly. The postures, um, what's introduced here is in whatever posture we're in, one knows that this posture is happening. So walking, one knows I'm walking. Sitting, one knows when the sitting. And however the body is disposed, one knows accordingly. And then the uh, embodied uh, activities practice. And the highlight here and the first sentence, act uh, in full awareness. For whatever activities that we're engaging in with our bodies, and if you read this list, and seems to me it's really kind of summarizing a whole, uh, basically this monastic daily life activities that they engage in, in with the embodied way. And for us, um, the modern uh, lay uh, life, our list may look a little different. Uh, we can shift and change the list. But uh, what is common across this is the highlight of acting in full awareness. So now I'm going to stop sharing and I'll go back to my notes here. So um, let's speak about the posture and activities practices separately, uh, maybe uh, together. I, I want to highlight a few areas to consider. Both of these practices can be used for uh, intense practice uh, on retreats, for example, as well as in daily life. Now, uh, when we do uh, maybe intense practices like on retreats, these practices are great in creating continu continuity of mindfulness. You may all have experienced this before on retreats. Sometimes the teachers will invite um, uh, students after a couple of days uh, to say, uh, create a one continuous session of a practice um, by kind of continuously bring, bring mindfulness uh, in the sitting and then the walking and then the sitting and really bring mindfulness at four. Now, our bodies can't sit in one posture forever. We all know this. And so there is a cycle that we need to, uh, after sitting, stand up and walking. And the continuity of the practice is very powerful for strengthening and maturing the mindfulness muscle. And the other thing I want to highlight uh, is uh, that you may all notice this, uh, that 
the transitional time, the in-between time, as we move from one posture to another, is when our mindfulness can easily get lost. The the bell of this, um, the the sound of the bell comes. Our eyes open. The moment our eyes open, we can get caught by the commentaries based on what we saw. Look, she was still sitting there. Maybe I should be sitting more. Oh boy, he jumped up. What is he doing? You know. So there's all of a sudden all kind of stories would flood in. Well, uh, we are not uh, making a deliberate uh, cultivation. Through this in-between transitional times, we can get very lost very quickly. And sometimes we may not notice until, you know, we're standing in the kitchen holding a cup of tea. I mean, what happened? (laughs) It was all in-between time. And so uh, for myself, I'm calling uh, this kind of practice as a, mindfulness gap fillers you know that fills a lot of gaps where we can get totally lost in our mindfulness practices and uh, i'll say a few words about um, the um, uh, how to practice with this kind of uh, mindfulness practices in embodied mindfulness practices Uh, one is to invite some sense of lightness to it don't get tied up in knots trying to see everything this is not a practice that as many things as you see that's the better but really whatever is known know it clearly really be there for that and so for me sometimes i practice um just uh, intentionally for one stretch of time uh, maybe about one thing. So, for example, I tend to be the first person getting up in the morning in my household. And I would go to kitchen and preparing meals and, and for my family. And then it's just a lot of dancing around in the kitchen. I dedicate myself just for uh, engaging with the mindfulness practice in this whole, you know, I call it happy hour. Because when we're really there with the practice, a lot of things came alive in us. And so this uh, leads me to um, maybe saying a few words about uh, the words that are repeatedly used in these practices that has to do some, uh, has to do with the sense of knowing. Right. And these two uh, passages uh, used uh, two poly terms that share this common root, that is um, pajanati and sampajana. They both have the common root of uh, pajana. That kind of gets translated as knowing awareness. And the sum um, has this qualitative, qualitative um, uh, empathetic kind of a sense um, around the whole sense of knowing. And sometimes it gets translated as clear knowing, clear comprehension, clear awareness. And for me, there is maybe a sense of enrichment in the sense of knowing. So what are this uh, pointing to? 
um, I can't say I know exactly what Sampajana means <laughs> in the kind of uh, the, uh, the context it's in. But uh, experientially, as our mindfulness practices deepen and mature, we all know for ourselves that this knowing capacity um, can become available to us. And this knowing capacity that may be a, um, a domain, a field, a quite potent uh, in various ways, maybe even have different layers and uh, different dimensions to it and that human beings have access to. And it's not one thing. It's not something that's nicely boxed up in particular shape and form. But it's a field and it's a capacity that one can cultivate and have access to. I want to contrast this kind of annoying with some of the, uh, another kind of annoying that many of us are familiar with and I call more or less knowing or sort of knowing. And so, for example, you know, maybe we're walking, but we're thinking about the plans for the evening or we're working on the projects in our head and probably remembering something. And we sort of know that we're walking, but not quite. You know, we can live our lives in this way kind of all day long. And the moment we wake up, we get preoccupied with lots of things uh, in our mind. But contrasting with this kind of knowing, uh, Sampajana, and what the Buddha is inviting us to cultivate, and uh, is the kind of knowing that has a clarity to it, vibrancy to it. And so, for example, sometimes when I'm um, uh, in the morning, in standing in the kitchen, and just being with the sound, the sound of the water, sound of uh, water hitting the dishes, and the touching of the fruit, sometimes I could feel that the sound, almost as if they have sharp edges around it. But it's not the sound or my hearing. And that's somehow becoming different. Rather, it's the kind of knowing when it's no longer clouded by the preoccupations that one may have. And so the kind of knowing that is clear. One of my teachers like to use this phrase to maybe speak to this territory, and that is, knowing that one knows, or knowing that knowing is happening. So there is kind of that depth of knowing that is happening. The other aspect that I'll highlight in terms of this form of knowing is knowing according to what is happening, not according to what I wanted it to happen or I prefer it to happen, so you see the difference here. And so oftentimes when we engage in activities, there can be that sense of a trying, I'm trying to get this thing in some way. But this clouds our mind. And this form of knowing is pointing at that uh, embodied knowing that we've been talking about. That is 
However, the body is disposed. We know that according, accordingly, according to the body. And so, in this way, the Chinese translation sometimes uh, uh, translate、uh, sampajana as this sense of a direct knowing or knowing according to however things are happening, knowing things the way they are. And so this can feel like a paradigm shift because we are so used to knowing from directing from our heads. But in these practices that we're introducing, embodied practices, we are training to let go of the directing from our head, from an ego-centered or self-centered way. We're little by little shifting. By knowing the body and mind as they are, and so、uh, I invite you to kind of、uh, allow、uh, this form of a practice to come about、uh, in your daily life practice, engaging with the practice from this perspective. So with that, I'm going to pass it on to David,、uh, maybe to invite us for a practice. Thank you, Ying. Thank you. I love this idea you just you just introduced that mindfulness directed toward the body invites invites us to a paradigm shift, and and possibly sort of to a、uh, a shifting away from paradigm, shifting away from conceptions of of the body, the body in the world, the body amongst other bodies. And、um, to really direct experience of the body as 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 body. So let's do a little meditation practice. I'll set it up very briefly with some sort of general words. This is a practice based on the meditation on thirty-two parts of the body that that you'll find in the in the text Majjhima one nineteen. It's a distillation or a simplification of it that、uh, Bhikkhu and Nalio has introduced,、uh, and、uh, can be quite powerful.、We're, we'll have about fifteen minutes, so that also helps sort of work through these things. the The overall aim of this practice of reviewing the parts of the body, the physical constituents of the body, those that we can be aware of and feel, and those that we just know are there from observation. Seems to be to arrive at sort of a, a balanced attitude toward the body, one that、uh, avoids our temptation to indulge the body's every whim, but one that also doesn't lead us to neglect the body or be repulsed by the body or turn away from our bodily experience of the world. So let's sit in the meditation posture. We'll issue. Sort of the、uh, introductory instructions that I think everybody's familiar with. Find a comfortable posture. Bring the eyes down if that's comfortable. As we bring the eyes down, we can sort of rebalance our our attention inward, bringing our attention down, in and down in the body, noticing the breath happening. And maybe just sitting with a few breaths too, as Ying 
directed us, just bringing our awareness to our knowing, the simple knowing that's happening, simple knowing that we can in our practice clear of clear of extra, just being aware of the body breathing. And then in this meditation, we can begin a gentle sweep of this knowing, of this attention, of this mindful, mindful care to three aspects of the body that reflect the 32 parts of the, of the discourse. We can begin with the skin and beginning with our head and face. Bring attention to the skin. And to begin the practice, we might just take our hands and touch the forehead. Just a brief touch to ground our experience in skin on skin. We can notice maybe in the face the tightness of the skin, perhaps some some tightness brought by the furrowing of the brow, the concentration of attending an early morning class. We can notice perhaps the cool or the warmth of the air in our surroundings as it touches our skin, as our skin touches the world. We can let our attention drift downwards to the skin covered by clothing, the body clothed and the skin making contact with clothing. We can notice the sensations in this layer of skin as the body moves with the breathing. As we drop our attention downwards over the torso, down our legs, you can notice the quality of the sensation against the skin. There may be discomfort from clothes that are tight or comfort from clothes that are warm. We might notice neutral feelings or pleasant feelings or unfeeling, unpleasant feelings as the skin touches clothing. And as we arrive at our feet, we can notice the sensations of the skin throughout the whole body for a brief moment. The body covered with this layer of skin with its nerve endings, with its sense of buzzing or sensitivity or responsiveness, readiness, potential, 
we can start to move our attention back up in a sweep that takes us up the body and focuses on the flesh of our body. Maybe noticing the calves and thighs, the buttocks, just being aware of the fleshiness of the body, the volume of the body. As we bring attention to the torso, in addition to flesh that is muscle, there's also organs and fluids, bodily substances, some of which we can feel moving, changing, some of which we can sense in the heat in the core, some of which possibly we know are there but don't feel unless they're giving us trouble. some of which we may feel moving in a constant steady rhythm, the heart beating, the lungs inhaling and exhaling. We can sweep our attention back up into our heads, And begin another sweep downward, noting in our heads the boniness, the hardness, the rigidity of the cranium, of the jaw, the nose. We may be aware of the tension of the weight of the head being balanced on the neck, bones of the neck and spine in their, in their arrangement, their stack, their, the spring that holds us erect and gives us our posture. We can feel the hardness of the shoulders with their arms hanging down. Perhaps as we breathe, we can feel the bones and cartilage of the chest expanding, contracting with each breath. can feel the weight of the body on the sits bones. And we can sense the stiffness and at the same time, the resilience of the bones of the legs and feet. And then having reviewed this knowing of the body as body, this knowing of skin, of flesh and fleshiness, of internal organs, of the hardness of the bone, we can open our awareness, the gentle knowing to our experience of the whole body sitting here in meditation. And maybe taking this all in, 
the skin, the flesh, the bone. This body with its external appearances, its external layers, its internal organs and ability to move. Maybe we can open our awareness up to the knowing of the function of these aspects of the body. The skin exchanging and sensing the flesh and organs making use of nutrients. giving us the ability to move and have agency in the world. The bone providing framework. So we'd like to sort of ask at this point whether the first section of teachings provided by Ying, whether the guided meditation uh, stimulates some questions or reflections, whether anything comes up about this practice of the 32 body parts or anything else that we've talked about so far. And I want to recognize that Kathleen had raised her hand and uh, indicated a question earlier and just want to 
invite her to follow with that question uh, if it if it's still something that she'd like to ask um it was just a technical question on the first practice and i i believe we already talked about this but if you could clarify um the breathing in long and the breathing out long breathing in short breathing out short um when you're doing this in practice, how do you understand whether you're breathing long or short without comparing? I love this question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and what I love about this question is that it's, it's, it's never asked enough. It's such an interesting, it's such an interesting part of these instructions. And for me, and I'm going to ask my colleagues to share if they have anything more, more profound or meaningful to add. But for me, it's, it's a way of directing my attention in great detail to what's going on in the breath. It's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a teasing thing where the implication is to ask myself, what makes long? What makes short? How do I know? What is the breath? Um, so anyway, I found this a really extraordinarily powerful teaching, just these first two uh, instructions of, of, the, of the breathing. But I think frequently the way it's been interpreted is to sort of really bring our attention to the whole breath, each, each inward inhalation, each outward exhalation, and noting um, changes in the breathing. Possibly it also brings our attention to, as we sit in meditation, the breath will change, frequently becoming longer, deeper, or sometimes shallower and shorter. So anyway, wonderful question. Diana, Kim, Ying, anything more? That's sort of my response. It's a very practice response. Maybe, maybe there's something more, uh, more valuable you can add. Yeah, maybe I'll just say that long and short, smooth, rough, this is, um, you know, we don't say five seconds is long, <laughs> two seconds is short. So it's really just this lightheartedness that I uh, was also mentioning in the talk, that it, however it is known, it's okay. And in this, um, so that the, if you find yourself comparing, this is what really adding extra um no one is going to have a, a measure right next to you <laughs> to kind of figure it out. So, uh, yeah, have uh, some light and fun uh, in, um, in those practices. And however it shows up that uh, this is how you perceive, that's okay. Wonderful question. Yeah. Um any other questions? Diana, Kim, anything to add on? Oh, Deanna. Hi. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for this. I'm, I love how this gets so existential so quick. Like, I'm super here for it. So um, <laughs> my question is about um, Ying's offering, um, about the full awareness in the activities, like while you're doing activities. And... I will use a personal example that is somewhat banal, but um, so I'm learning how to knit and I'm not a skilled knitter, but I find it quite enjoyable and I'm really working on my things when I'm knitting. 
it takes like Herculean focus for me. Like other people can knit and watch TV. No, you know, for me, it's like, and I love it. And I'm like working and I'm focused on it. And every once in a while, I'll sometimes have a little bit of awareness, like, wow, I'm really fully immersed in this. And then back to the cabling needle and trying to figure out how the hell to cable, right? And so, so I'm kind of in and out. And I'm wondering, though, if, and I don't know anything about this, like, insight concentration, like, distinction or whatever. I'm really new to this. So, like, I don't know. But, like, is that, am I fully aware in those moments that I'm not saying, wow, I'm really immersed in this. Does this make any sense? Just going to stop talking. I just love what you uh, shared, uh, Diana. I think this, uh, again, I think this word full awareness sometimes gets us all tangled up, you know, what exactly is a full and not full. (laughs) But uh, one thing that is very helpful for me is to notice that I'm no longer wandering around, thinking about this, thinking about that. And so there's a sense of the hindrances falling away. And the other thing uh, that sometimes we can open up uh, to begin to invite uh, uh, another perspective coming in is a sense of well-being. Um, so for me, the morning hour in the kitchen feels like a happy hour for me. Um, and so uh, some of this aspect that we can also tune in to say, oh, you know, am I really kind of tightened up in my body and trying to get this right and there is, a, there is a lightness in our in our being, yeah. Maybe there are other um, teachers that would uh, say something. Thank you, Ying, and thank you, Deanna, for the question. And I'd love to ask Nancy if you could hold your question until the next uh, opportunity, which will come up shortly. Uh, appreciate that, and I will remember, or we will, we will, we will remember. And uh, I want to pass it to Kim now. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I want to talk a little bit now about these, um, the next couple of meditations. Uh, we just did this wonderful meditation from David on the parts of the body, the anatomical parts. And maybe you found that experiencing the body in that way, meaning sort of with that lens of the skin and the flesh and the bones, Uh, differs from your usual way of perceiving your body, like, say, when we look in the mirror. And then on Tuesday, um, previous class, Yang led us in a meditation on the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water, which is kind of yet a different uh, lens we could use to look at the body. I'm saying lens, although these are meant to be somewhat more direct than our usual way. Um, So we'll, we'll talk through that a little bit. So I'm going to talk about these next two practices in the suttas, the the bodily parts and the elements, in terms of how they help to develop the mind. So we actually have many different experiences of the body. And consider how your body feels. And you can actually even imagine it, as I'm saying it, when you are sitting at the computer, maybe here. Like, how does your body feel? 
And how does your body feel when you have just woken up from sleep and you're lying in your bed and it's warm and you're in the lying down position? And how does your body feel when you are ill and have a high fever? And how does your body feel when you're hanging upside down from your legs on the jungle gym? Okay, maybe some of us haven't had that experience for a while. Um, but it hardly seems like the same body, you know, in these different situations that we're in. So here is a, a novel idea. Maybe the body is simply how we experience it at that moment. How it feels right now, that is the body. Uh, in contrast, this idea of my body as a thing uh, is a concept. So we're going to start to look, you know, as we go deeper into these practices, we can start to consider the difference between a more direct perception, a more direct knowing, as Ying was talking about, and our concepts of the body. Okay, so um, let's talk about these anatomical parts. The Buddha suggested uh, specific perceptions that we can bring to our bodily experience that are effective in reducing our amount of conceptualization of the body and also reducing certain attachments that we tend to have. And then in correspondence, these ways of seeing increase wisdom. So that's the bodily parts and the elements are two specific methods to train us to be more accurate and skillful in how we see the body. Several of you said this was an interest uh, in taking this class, is to have a deeper understanding of the body, better connection to it. So um, bodily parts in the sutta, there are 30, actually 31 parts if you count them, just to be, uh, so you won't be confused, that they're always called the 32 parts because um, later in the commentarial tradition, Buddha Gosa added the brain <laughs> into the list. Some people realize eventually, oh, maybe we should have the brain in there too. So of course, of course, there are more than 32 or 31 parts, um, but that's okay. This is enough to do the practice well. And in the sutta, we are simply asked to review the body in terms of these parts, scanning through and noting them. And um, later texts make sort of a more detailed and specific way that you can do that. So, you know, we've already seen that there might be a number of ways to do that. Um, but the issue, you know, why are we doing it this way, is that we tend to be very attached to the body, including the bodies of others, which we see all day. So we look at people and we see, say, attractiveness in their hair, in their eyes, in their buns, you know, other parts. So um, mostly because we're operating at a very conceptual level that's very selective about what it sees. So in fact, the body has a lot of parts that are not very attractive or appealing. And the meditation on the 32 parts helps us kind of cool down this lust that we might have and give a more accurate view of the body. Um, David was careful to say that it's meant to bring us into a balanced perspective on the body. It, um, you know, it balances our tendency to only see the parts that we think are attractive. Um, and so then we, we want to guard against uh, going too far into disgust. For example, if you really contemplate the liver, you know, it's kind of, uh, we wouldn't want to see that uh, lying out on the table. Um, 
So, and this did happen in the suttas, is people sometimes got disgusted with this body through doing this practice. So we can also um, maybe have a sense of humor and um, play a little bit with the parts practiced. So I'll just give one example, which is that quite a few years ago, uh, I teamed up with a couple of friends to do the 32 parts practice in 33 days. That was one part per day, plus the whole body on the 33rd day. And it was fascinating. Um, you know, I just, you know, we just kind of did it how we wanted to, like maybe read a little bit about the part. What does this part do? Where is it? What's it for? How big is it? And then meditate and see if we could kind of tune into it and experience it. I mean, this is not exactly an orthodox way of doing this, but it was kind of fun. And I discovered insights through doing this. Um, for one thing, the order of the parts is not random. There's a general logic to it. Um, just as a simple example, the first five parts, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, those are the ones that are visible externally. That's pretty much what you see when you see someone. And the skin is kind of the boundary, right, between external and internal. So maybe it makes sense that it's the last one out of the externally visible parts, and then you transition inward. And as I meditated on each one and feeling into it and so forth, I began to see patterns and linkages um, in the list. And I saw how the body is its own ecosystem and also not really under control from my will. There's a lot going on that I don't have any say in particularly. So I could say a lot more about this, but maybe you'll be intrigued to try it out. For the sake of time, we need to move on, but there's, there's a lot um, to be uncovered there, let's say. So then we can go on to the four elements. So these elements, um, they're not physical elements like we have in Western science, like hydrogen or oxygen. They're actually meant to be four different experiences that characterize materiality, our bodily experience. Uh, as, as Joseph Goldstein has said, there's no experience called hand. Uh, instead, we feel hardness, tension, cohesion, heat, motion, you know, in this part of the body. So the elements are closer to our actual experience than our concepts of bodily parts, of anatomical parts. So we're kind of moving in. Uh, these elements are quite visceral and direct, and they bring the mind straight into the qualities of the body that are shared by all material objects. So the hardness of my teeth is not really different from the hardness of a table, hardness. So we're, we're meant to meditate on this for each of the four elements, letting the boundary between inner and outer kind of blur away. Um, so we, you know, one of the main aims of the element practice then is to support the insight of not self. You know, what in your bodily experience is really you? There is no identity in hardness or warmth. Uh, the sense of my body as a self that's separate can't really be sustained when the lens of the elements is applied, seem to be kind of just the same stuff here or there. So that's one, one possible direction it can go in. Um, but there are others. You know, another effect of this kind of meditation is to connect us with what might be called the, the energy body or the subtle body, uh, something that's not so anatomical. 
Uh, this is maybe most related to the air element, particularly how Ying pointed to it so nicely in the last meditation as a subtle sense of vibration, you know, the, the vibration that we have from being alive and various flows of energy that we can feel throughout the body. It's not the air element is not just the breath going in and out of the lungs. If we sit still, we'll feel that there are flows really of energy all through the body. So Ying pointed out that this is called uh, qi in Chinese. And some of you may have done uh, qigong, for example, or tai chi, um, where the system has been very well developed in Chinese medicine. Um, but we kind of don't need to go into all the conceptuality of this. And of course, there are other cultures that have energy systems also. Uh, instead, we can just feel in our body and learn to sense and, and almost read um, this energy that we have. I would say the subtle body for my practice is a place where healing can occur in our mind-body system. We might find various emotions and memories that have gotten stuck, if you will, in the energy system of the body. Uh, and, and remember, we're not, we're not just feeling them and we're not applying another energy system. This is mindfulness of the body. So we're experiencing these in mindfulness when the mind has this quality called sati, a particular kind of attention. In that attention, um, some of these can be released and the mind and body can settle. So there's, there's again, a lot more that can be said on that. I'm sorry to say that I'm, I really am, I'm not sorry, but I'm really in love with these um, subtle body practices. So I can tend to kind of go on and on, but I'll summarize at this point to say that um, these approaches to seeing the body that are so different from our usual conceptual view, they're kind of deconstructing our way of seeing from our usual, usual highly conceptual view, which is not accurate and is not conducive to wisdom, uh, into something that is more accurate and is more uh, allows us to cultivate wisdom. So the anatomical parts and the elements bring the mind closer into alignment with reality, uh, which is important in this practice. And we can see that they come, um, they come from a particular perspective. They have a little bit of a directive lens. I'm going to contrast slightly with the Sampajanya that Ying was talking about in our daily activities, where we are really just um, allowing everything to be exactly as it is. Here we have a little bit of a lens that we put on. We say, let's pay attention to the hardness, to the liquidity, to the energy. Um, but it's, it's more accurate. So we actively apply certain ways of seeing because they're better than our sort of um, usual conceptual way. And then, um, but we don't stop there because they are actually still then slightly conceptual. We've applied more accurate concepts, but it's a stepping stone um, into uh, other practices and insights that we can have through the body. Next, we'll be talking about the jhana practices, yet another way of applying our attention uh, that brings the body into a very um, profound state of um, of concentration that we can use to, again, cultivate the mind. So we see that there are some specific ways of viewing that can lead um, to fruitful results in the practice. And um, I will continue to explore these. There's so much to the body. Everything is really there. <laughs> um, it's a whole complete path in and of itself, which is maybe why this sutta ends with awakening. So um, I'll stop. For there may you be 
well deconstructed and um, and continue to enjoy your enjoy your practice of the body. So now Diana will lead us in some a chance for you guys to share among yourselves. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, I love this uh, these practices, and I appreciate very much the way that uh, Kim shared how. This, uh, these are different lenses in which we can use, and it might help us to shift our way that we are conceiving of this sense of uh, having a body or the deconstruction, we might use this word. So in what situations, in what uh, environment, in what um, uh, experiences might it be supportive to do these kinds of alternative perceptions of the body? When would it be helpful to maybe use a particular one of these as it, as opposed to you know, one's usual way of practicing? So we'd like to put you into some breakout groups to um, talk about this. And when or in what situations might it be supportive to do these kinds of alternative perceptions of the body? Specifically, Kim was talking about the 32 parts and the elements these ones in which they we um, deconstruct, I'll use this word for this. So you'll be in groups of three or four, and you'll have about 12 minutes in a group. Um, and just to reiterate what we said last time, this isn't a time to maybe tell everybody everything that you know about the body, but instead just to say a little bit. And it can be really helpful to just say maybe one idea, let it go to the next person. They say one idea. It goes to the next person. They say one idea. And then it comes back around to the first person. And now maybe they're influenced and has a new idea. And this way, instead of telling everything that you know, you're maybe stimulated to have some new understandings, have some new idea. And maybe you hear yourself saying something that maybe you wouldn't have said right at the very beginning because you have something, uh, a new perspective. And if it's helpful, you can go in alphabetical order. And it's kind of like in a spiral and supporting one another and creating this question, this um, ideas of when it might be supportive to do these alternative perceptions of the body. Okay, so if we're ready, we can go into the breakout rooms. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. I'm looking at the numbers of participants. We still have a few rooms coming back to join us. There we go. Okay. Okay. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hopefully that was a uh, interesting opportunity to talk amongst yourselves um, about uh, some of these ideas and when it might be a helpful situation. And before I open it up, it's kind of like a debrief to how that was in the breakout room, as well as any other questions. I do want to um, check in with Nancy and see if you'd uh, like to ask your question that you had um, from earlier. Nancy Hamilton, I think you had a question from earlier. Yeah, um, sure. Uh... Let's see. So my question isn't uh, necessarily that related to what we just did or discussed, but um, uh, 
a lot of people have brought up other embodied practices that they do, like knitting and um, yoga and qigong and, and and stuff like that. And um, and I've been thinking of of one of my my own practices that I've I've recently re uh, taken up from when I was a teenager and also when I was a uh, uh, adult in my late twenties and early thirties. Um, which is, is figure skating. Um, and when I, when I grew up in the sport as a teenager, it was at a time when we practiced something called school figures, which was about tracing circles, um, in patterns of eights or serpentine patterns on the ice. And, um, it was a way of isolating uh, basic skills, uh, isolating what it feels like to skate forwards or backwards on a certain part of the blade, and also what it feels like to do a turn. There are four basic turns, and so the turns are isolated, and they're done depending on the level at different um, speeds and at different places on the pattern. And um, that particular uh, set of practices has been replaced now by uh, a different set of patterns that isolate the edges and turns at sort of, I guess, real speed. Um, but it's the same thing. It's, it's a pattern and um, you don't, you don't think about it. Um, that's kind of the nice thing about a pattern or a form is that um, it is already decided and we all agree to do the form and so we don't think like, oh, I really think the form would be better if it were done this way or that way. So there's no like um, temptation to uh, evaluate it or to, to assign likes or dislikes or preferences to the form. And, um, and so it becomes a, a training and, and something kind of, I guess, sacred for lack of a better term in and of itself, that um, this is something that... Uh, has been practiced for, for years and years in a certain way. And so that when I do this form, I, I know in my body what it feels like to do this type of edge or this type of turn. And it takes the conceptualization away from it. Like I don't call it, uh, for example, a counter. I know what it feels like to do this turn in my body. And um, so I really uh, appreciate this idea of, form and how it um is so foundational and calming um to uh a certain um uh craft and i i'm seeing that this sort of mindfulness of the body can be thought of in a certain in the same way as a form that can influence or shape our practice and our mindfulness and i'm i'm wondering um, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but like, in what ways can these practices be forms for us in our daily life in tasks that are not necessarily bodily centered? Like many of us have uh, jobs and tasks that require sitting and thinking and evaluating, um, maybe writing 
Uh, and so, you know, it's not as fun as skating figures <laughs> um, in terms of like getting into that bodily flow of it. But uh, yeah, like how, how can mindfulness of the body help um, create forms or patterns in our lives when we're not doing embodied practices so much? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nancy. So first I'll say I appreciate very much that you, um, what you're pointing to, the first part of what you're talking about, about whether forms or not is part of the art of practice in terms of learning, like, okay, when, when should we use some discipline and really just familiarize ourselves and, and adopt a form? And really, we learn something about ourselves of our resistance to that or the way we want to do it or don't do it or how we, uh, the stories we make about those parts that we don't like or something like this and or the parts that we do do so that's part of the art of practice is maybe to choose a form we'll use this word we could use you know a particular lens in which to do body um mindfulness of the body and part of the art of practice is okay when is this not the right thing for me to do be doing right now either because we are discovering that, um, you know, some of us maybe have had injuries or trauma in our body, and it is not wise maybe to spend time uh, doing particular practices. This might not be helpful for us at all. So part of the art of practice is to recognize both of these. Is When is it helpful and when is it not helpful? And not to always be following our preferences, but instead to bring in some wisdom. And then the second thing, your question about um, how do we bring in mindfulness of the body when we're reading, for example, or uh, using the um, computer or something? You didn't use those exact uh, words, but when we're doing so much of uh, mental activities. And, yeah, so I, I, will, I can uh, speak to my own experience is that when I'm reading and concentrating, I'm not really mindful of my experience at that moment, sitting in a chair or wherever I'm sitting or whatever posture I'm in. But um, I'm in, I'm quote unquote, in that experience. And so part of the uh, practice, right, is, is this noticing of when we are aware and when we aren't aware, kind of this often this flickering that happens, this um, um, when we're in mental experiences and when we're more um, aware of physical experiences and also noticing how maybe the distinction between those two becomes a little bit uh, artificial in some ways. And I don't know if some of my co-teachers want to talk about this. Well, I'll just say that I think what Ying offered in terms of daily life practice um, worked very well. And maybe a small piece that I'll add is uh, having a broad now and then having a broad awareness. Like if you're reading a book, mostly you're just reading it and you're in what's being read. But now and then the mind can open and see the space around the book. And you can be aware that you're sitting in the chair with the book. And then maybe you go back in. But we can train the mind. The same thing on the computer. It might seem impossible, but, you know, you can even do it right now. Those of you who are looking at the screen, can you see the space around the screen, even as you also see the screen? And if you bring the mind into that kind of awareness a few times during a computer task, you're effectively 
touching into this broader mindfulness and then going back into what you're doing. Um, and then, of course, there are multiple mindfulness of mind practices that do have a little structure to them, but that's really not the focus of this course. But I love your question, Nancy, and I, I hope our various answers might have helped you. Thank you. Let's see, so I see, Jerry, you have your hand up. So maybe we'll just have a brief uh, question and then um, we'll turn it over to Ying. Okay, thank you. Um, I must say that group I was just in out of a lot of groups in the last couple of weeks, uh, we followed the guidance and it really does move quickly. It's very interesting. Uh, um, somehow, uh, I think we, we were using the word deconstruct. I see the question doesn't say deconstruct, but um, the last round, which was the fourth or fifth round, uh, we had a, a, a little, everybody was adding their input on uh, what does it mean to deconstruct? And that was very interesting, actually. Uh, I think the consensus seemed to be that deconstructing uh, invited or was associated with, uh, I would use the word, we didn't use that word, disidentification with self because body and self. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking now, uh, and it has a nice little ring to it, is that uh, we deconstruct to reconstruct. Mm. fluid type of process that we don't get locked into this is the body we so we're open to an inv ongoing investigation as we deconstruct and reconstruct mm, nice nice beautiful thank you jerry thank you now wish we had time to hear from more but uh we want to respect everybody's time and end on time so i'll turn it over to ying Yeah, I really liked uh, what Jerry, uh, Jerry just mentioned in terms of deconstruct and, and construct again, kind of, um, and it would be uh, really uh, useful in our practice to begin to discern, you know, what kind of a construction is supportive and helpful and what are the kind of a construction that we're making is really leading us in dukkha, right? And some of this deconstruction that is happening uh, is really kind of uh, deconstructing this abstract ideas that uh, tend to get us really held up, caught up. And so begin to notice some of the differences um, that are in this form of a constructing and de deconstructing. And so uh, as we wrap up today, uh, we are going to give you uh, some ideas for continuing the study and practice. And just remember that our next class will be uh, next Tuesday. Um, Tuesday will be our next session. And for that session, we'll be going uh, into uh, additional um, practices and uh, reflections from the Susutta, and that includes uh, jhana, and some of you uh, already mentioned, and then uh, also progressing uh, through mindfulness body, uh, getting into uh, the whole process unfolding uh, with practicing mindfulness body. And so that's um, section 18 to 21, and that is the sections on jhana, um, and then the sections of 22 to 31. And those are the uh, images and similes that are related to um, 
progressing through uh, with mindfulness of the body. So I invite you to continue the reading, um, but maybe repeat uh, the reading that you've done and the handouts that's being shared. And maybe there's some new perspective jumping out. And with all the practices that we shared uh, so far, we also wanted to invite you to maybe just pick one single body practice. You know, Kim was saying, maybe just one body part a day <laughs> for the next few days before we meet. And let's see what um, bubbles up in that practice. And practice is not very helpful when we're trying to do all of them at the same time. So uh, keep things, uh, uh, things simple. But maybe pick one and that you feel uh, uh, is an edge for you and you wanted to kind of expand into this domain of a practice and then work with it in the next few days um, before we meet again. So I want to just thank you for being here together. And maybe we'll uh, collect our... uh, beautiful energies and uh, allow the goodness to nourish you. I mean, maybe bring healing and um, well-being uh, in each of us. And may this benefit and well-being spread out wide open in all directions touch everyone that we come in contact with. Thank you, everyone. And feel free to unmute. And uh, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you next week. Yeah. Bye. See you on Tuesday. Bye. Thank you. All our body parts. Thank you. Bye. Bye.